Welcome to the Cop Doc Podcast. This podcast explores police leadership issues and innovative ideas. The Cop Doc shares thoughts and ideas as he talks with leaders in policing, communities, academia, and other government agencies. And now, please join Dr. Steve Morielli and industry thought leaders as they share their insights and experience on the Cop Doc Podcast. Well, hello, everybody. This is Steve Morielli coming to you from Boston. You are listening to the Cop Talk Podcast. We have another episode starting, and I'm talking to a colleague out in Kansas City. He is from Wichita, Kansas, but he's in Kansas City today, Dr. Mike Berzer from Wichita State University. Hello there, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. First of all, I've been watching you from afar from a, for a long time. We've talked once on the phone. Yes. I loved your work about andragogy to use it in police training, never mind in our own classrooms. And so I know you are an avid writer, are certainly an author, you're a professor, you're a former law enforcement officer. Talk about how you ended up coming out of policing and into academia. You know, Dr. Morialli, that was not planned. I, when I entered policing, of course, at a young age, thought that was it. That's all I wanted to do. Actually, that's all I wanted to do since I was about 16 years old and joined a sheriff's cadet program in Wichita and the rest is history. So, of course, I was a non-traditional college student. I didn't think initially I needed to go to college. I just wanted to be a cop and that was it. And so I got into policing and then suddenly realized, you know, maybe I need to go to college. And so I worked my way through my undergraduate degree and then a master's really wasn't even on the table. And then I thought, you know maybe a master's degree might not hurt. And so I went back and got my master's degree. And that's when it really, it really hit me that I liked research. I like this stuff. I like learning about theory and research and methodology. And so it was a question when I earned the master's degree, what do I do now? And in Wichita at the time, keep in mind, distance education, online education just wasn't there. Yes. And, uh, you know, I was faced with the dilemma, where do I go get a, a doctorate from Wichita, Kansas? Wichita State had minimal doctorates at that time that they were offering. And so I started looking around and found a program at Oklahoma State. And it was in the educational studies area. And it was adult continuing occupational education. And so I applied for the program and went down for an interview. At that time, they were interviewing all the candidates and met with chair of the program at that time. And he said, well, you know, he said, you're You'd be coming in kind of a non-traditional if you're going to work through the work. And that's what I needed to do. I was in my career. And they accepted me in the program. And he said, you know, we'll consider you in residence as long as you can get down here for classes. So I commenced on about a four and a half year journey back and forth from Wichita to Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is about a 140 mile round trip several times a week in at the time, I had a captain that was just a great guy. He allowed me to flex, do some flex hours. And that's how I kind of ended up in academia and then hit 18 years in policing and was about ready to finish my doctorate, defend my dissertation. And opportunity came up in Ada, Oklahoma, at a university called East Central University. And it's just a small school. I had an opportunity to go teach there. And so I had a real big decision to make. You know, do I leave policing and go ahead and enter into academia at this point or do I stick out? policing a few more years. This chance would have it. I ended up retiring early from policing and then moving to Ada, Oklahoma for my first year as an academic. So let me ask you this then. How far away was Ada from where you were in Wichita? It's about a three and a half hour drive. Oh, okay. So it's, 
It's not close. Southeast Oklahoma. I got you. So I, you know, I use the term a lot and I'm sure you've heard it a whole bunch if you don't use it yourself, but you're a pracademic. You're a practical guy, somebody who did the job and certainly for an awful long time rose up to be a lieutenant, went back to school as a non-traditional student. And as I was, I think that you're different in the classroom. As professors now understand when you have police officers in your classroom, it's almost like you have a graduate assistant or a teacher's aide. And again, I think I can see some similarities that I never saw myself as somebody who had the capacity to earn a doctorate. And yet here we are and giving back to to students. So you are writing, you are teaching. Talk about Wichita State and that criminal justice department. How big is it? What are the courses you're teaching? So Wichita State University actually we kind of pride ourselves on having one of the, I wouldn't say the oldest, but one of the older programs in the country. Actually, it was started back in the 1930s by a renowned chief, O.W. Wilson, when he was chief. In I've Wichita. never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, imagine that. Yeah. So it initially, Wilson started it. He had this wonderful relationship when he arrived in Wichita. He really worked closely with Wichita State at the time. And so it started as a police science program. Wilson's command staff taught seven of the police science courses at the university. And gradually over the course of the years, it evolved into a full-service criminal justice uh, degree where students can study policing, corrections, courts, uh, judicial, et cetera, et cetera. We have right now in our graduate program approximately 25 active graduate students, and then our undergraduates, uh, a couple of hundred. And then our we have a forensic science program as well, which has really taken off and done very well. And there's probably 40 or 50 majors there. And then we have a Homeland Security program, which is doing very well with another probably 50, 60 students studying Homeland Security. And that's That's all the School of Criminal Justice. What's your area of of choice to teach? My area primarily focuses on policing. And I do teach uh, some of our methodology courses. I do qualitative research methods and I do advanced. Love love quality. I love quality. I love teaching that. And uh, and advanced research methods for our our graduate students, which really is just more of a graduate introduction to methods because a lot of our students are coming in. They didn't have that much preparation methodology. So yeah, law enforcement related courses. Let me tell you my experience but in the classroom, and certainly I've been at this for, I don't know, 18 to 20 years since I retired from law enforcement, that when I started, there was about 50% of the people or the students who wanted to be in policing. And I would say that has dwindled to maybe 20%. That's anecdotal at best, but there certainly is less interest in going into policing, but so many other areas you just talked about, it's cybersecurity and security itself and homeland security. And there's so many other options out there. Are you seeing the same thing out your way? Absolutely. I've seen that over the course of my career. And I think right now for us, where I'm seeing the interest is in Homeland Security Studies. A lot of students are beginning to gravitate to that area. Forensics, initially, we see students that come in and they are interested in the forensics, but you know, it's a heavy science program. It's heavy in the sciences. And a lot of students, they'll get in a year and they decide this is way too much science that I want to do or deal with. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. And it come down and somebody want to go into police work. Yeah. And dwindled significantly. It's a shame. It's unfortunate because I think in our society, in a democratic society, we need police. There certainly have been under fire agencies by the same token. I see in an effort to reform, whether it's forced upon them or it's doing it themselves. So there is some forward momentum. Problem is though, Mike, and by the way, we're talking to Mike Berzer. He is a professor at Wichita State, Dr. Mike Berzer out there in Kansas. And what I begin to worry about, and I'm sure you were in the classroom and we're talking 
and the Floyd incident happens and you say, well, okay, that's an outlier. And then something else happens and well, that's an outlier. But the more it happens, the more difficult it is to convince people that this is not rampant. How do you handle that? How do you address that? Not only with students, but people who know you're in a criminal justice education field. How do you address that? It is a challenge. The thing that I try to convey to students in the classroom when one of these fortunate incidents has occurred is they don't let this deter you, particularly those that are interested in police work as a career. Use this as an opportunity to go in and, and make things better. And I also use that same argument. Things that we know we really need to do in the criminal justice system to make it a more a fair system. And I convince a lot of my students, and I know some of the students come in and they're a little bit, believe it or not, anti-criminal justice. So I try to reinforce upon them that, you know, use this opportunity to go in and make things better if you think we need to reform and change. And certainly there are areas that we need to take a look at. And no question but about it, that. It's a challenge. It is a it, challenge. It is. It is for me too. So we talk an awful lot on this podcast about leadership and about organizational change and organizational dynamics and culture. And that's a lot of what you write about and what you research. I'd like to take you down a road for a moment about Andragogy. And I want to tell you this story, Mike. I remember having a conversation and I'm sure you've had this experience. You come from a police background and you walk on campus. It's a completely different culture. You're shaking your head. Would you agree Absolutely. with me? Yes. <laughs> and we have to adapt. And I remember being in a university-wide conversation and somebody was talking about pedagogy. And I said, well, actually, I use the, the principles of andragogy. And somebody, literally a colleague of mine, looked at me quizzically and said, do you have adults in your class? I thought that was the most bizarre <laughs> statement I had ever heard. But it's a very uphill battle to overcome the nomenclature, pedagogy versus andragogy. I know you are quite familiar with it. You about it. Talk about it. I'd love to hear it from your perspective. I think, you know, that's an interesting comment your colleague made, but you enter into college, you come to college with, with life experiences, some more than others, and those experiences are very real. And we usually, we were just talking about the students, how do you, can something happens in the policing profession, how do you convey to students that not the entire profession and come in and let's get busy and reform things that need to be changed. So students come into the classroom with a broad range of experiences. Many times those are unique experiences. And I think the professor as a facilitator can bring those experiences out to whatever we happen to be teaching, whether it's about criminological theory or whether it's about police training or whatever the case may be. We can bring that student's experience out or their experiences with police or the criminal justice system in general. It's really, as you're well aware, when you look at andragogy, what's about facilitation. It's not about the professor just pouring forth all these facts that the student regurgitates at a later time on an exam. It's much, much more than that. It's about really being a teacher, a teacher's teacher. That's what it's all about. And recognizing that students in the classroom, they bring experiences into the classroom and that the professor can capitalize upon those experiences, whatever topic they have. I like that. And certainly I see myself as a facilitator, not as a teacher. And yeah. even when I now do my syllabi, it says facilitator yes. rather than yes. teacher, because I think you're facilitating conversation, you're opening it up, you're sharing, you're asking them to share their life experiences. You're asking them to utter how they feel, how the people around them feel about these particular topics and why they feel that way and whether yes. or not they can support that. In other 
other words, give yes. me some evidence behind yes. that. Yes, I've done the same thing on my syllabi for years. I'll use facilitators as opposed to instructors. Having said that, some of the work you had done is to try to convince police academies to take this approach, to not be the sage on the stage, some maybe you or me as a lieutenant, a captain, whatever we might be to come in here and say, this is the way it's done, as opposed to let's talk about it. What experience have you had? What do you think should be done? In other words, you're beginning to develop both judgment, critical thinking, and beginning to help them develop discretionary approaches to things. And how can that be value? And is that well-received? When you wrote that, was that well-received? I think it was well-received among academic audiences. I think it was less received among policing populations. And I had these conversations with police commanders and trainers over the years. And I think police training, as you know, has been very, very paramilitaristic over the years. I remember doing a couple of year tour through our training academy as a training sergeant. And at the time I went up there, uh, one of the things I noticed is that recruit went out of the building. They forgot to put their ball cap. They had to carry around a big red brick for the rest of the day. And I'm thinking, you know, what's the purpose of this? (laughs) You know, you kind of, so I saw police training is trying to take away who the individual was when they come in the academy. And, you know, that that's very important because they're going to go back out into the community and they're going to become basically a citizen, but they're just a citizen with policing responsibilities. The whole idea of andragogy is really tops training upside down in the way we're used to doing things. An instructor at the front of the classroom pouring forth all the, you know, all these facts that recruits need to know. Andragogy, I think, would allow trainers to use that as an opportunity, for example, to teach. I see community policing, what we really want in real community policing with those three elements, I see that very much relevant to andragogy. I think problem solving, we can do those types of things. We can put recruits into small groups in the academy. And I think we can foster their learning much, much more than more of a behavioristic academy that's very paramilitaristic. And there are still those academies around today that are like that. I mean, they're close marching drills and things of that nature. Those are the wrong things we want to steal. We prepare the recruits to go out into the field, and then it's almost like we're preparing them to go out and face an enemy. Now, that's important. They've got to have those tactical skills to go out and potentially survive an encounter. But in reality, that's not everyday police work. Those are rarities in the field. Have you had any influence on police training as a result of this? I think I have. In our jurisdiction, they've recently begun to adopt a lot of those, what I call andragogical tenets into the classroom. So give you an example of that. So when they're teaching, they're speaking to Wichita Police Department, when they teach their multicultural diversity and inclusivity courses, they will bring members of the community in and have them interacting with, with the recruits during that training. And it's wonderful to see that. And that has never happened before. You know, that's just an, an occurrence within the last few years at Wichita State. So, And I've had this conversation. He's now retired. He's a retired chief there, Lim Moore, who I've actually presented some stuff with. It, it, and you so, just wrote a book with. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, he just retired and he was really instrumental in pushing a lot of that during his time as a training commander being appointed interim police chief. You know, it strikes me too that policing agencies in America and certainly across the world molded themselves in the likeness of the military. Mm -hmm. And yet that's what we hold ourselves to be paramilitary. And yet if you go back to the military today, they're not doing it 
that way. They are relying on their field personnel to provide some information and consider what the problems might be and what some of the solutions might be. And we're not there in many ways. We're still back in the 40s and 50s as opposed to looking at the military and the way they train their leaders today. And when it comes to leadership and leader development, we're talking to Mike Berzer, who is a professor at Wichita State University. One of the things that troubles me is the way we in policing promote people. And very often, you know, this happens all of the time. You are a sergeant. You're going to be promoted to lieutenant. For a long time, there's an acting lieutenant because we have to figure out who we're going to put in that position and the testing and the oral interviews and such. And so that position is left vacant for a little while. And then when you show up, whoever had it before is not going to help you because they've moved on to the next the next thing. This doesn't happen in the military. I wonder why we do that to ourselves. You're preaching to the choir. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> that is, yes, absolutely. That that was my experience as a practitioner. I'll give you an example of my own experience. I'm a detective. I'm assigned to the DEA task force in Wichita and I get a call, you know, to come downtown, port to headquarters. So I go down there and they promote me to sergeant. Said, you know, you'll wrap up assignment over at DEA in two weeks and you report to second watch patrol. That's where you're going. So I said, great. So I show up two weeks later, second watch patrol. And here I'm looking at 15 to 18 deputies at roll call. And I'm thinking, what I do here? You're exactly right. No one really mentors you. You really didn't at that time, at least, receive a lot of leadership training going into that position. That's quite the opposite of the military where you are prepared before you get into those roles. I think in large part, that still exists today. And it does. It does. It makes no sense. And I think these are places where we can see some room for improvement for sure. So I appreciate you talking to me about that. I'm going to go up and down the books that you have written in the past. And I know this has nothing to do with the list of articles you have written, but you have written Policing Today and Tomorrow way back when. It sounds like you're doing something 20 years later. I'll get to that in a minute. Introduction to Private Security, Introduction to Criminal Investigation, Principles of Leadership and Management, Racial Profiling, in their own words, criminals on crime. That's an interesting one to me. Police officer exams, police field operations, theory meets practice, a criminological guide and theoretical exploration of serial killers and infamous murders. And the most recent one, it looks like it was just released, is reimagined policing in the age of reform. So there's some similarities, but there's a vast swath that you are covering here, Mike. So tell me, you're not a one-trick pony, are you? No, I try not to be in the, <laughs> you know, in the tradition of Malkin Knowles and Andragogy. Yeah. You know, I'm a lifelong learner. I like learning about different topics in criminal justice. And, you know, for a while, you do policing research for so long and you kind of need something else. And so a lot of this was opportunities. They would come my way. The racial profiling work really stemmed from a grant from the Kansas Department of Transportation. And so they were looking for someone to do some qualitative work on experiences of persons of color that felt they were racially profiled. And so that was a few years there. And then the next thing I know, the book opportunity comes up. Can you publish this? And so there it is. Yeah, I, I chalk it up to just being a lifelong learner. And I like to learn about different topics. And yeah, maybe I've just been all over the place, but that's me. That's what I like. And it keeps me, it doesn't get me bored. No, I understand that. That's certainly not intended as criticism. I know you didn't take it that way. Instead of being a one-trick pony, you've got a wide variety of interests, all of which is relevant for sure. One of the ones that strikes me is, in their own words, criminals on crime. That, to me, is your attempt to use that qualitative 
qualitative approach to understanding what's going on. Talk about that. And let's talk a little bit about qualitative versus quantitative. I think everybody understands quantitative. And there are some out there that feel that qualitative is not necessarily a scientific method. And I and you absolutely disagree with that. But let's talk about that. Sure. Yeah. In their own words, my dear friend and colleague, Paul Cromwell, brought me into that work in it must have been the second edition. And the book really presents perspectives from criminals across the board, from white collar criminals. And it's it's an edited work. So we've selected some of the best pieces we thought that kind of fit into the different areas, everything from property offenders to persons that commit white collar crimes, et cetera. And I think oftentimes in criminal justice criminology, I think we miss that perspective from those that are actually doing the crimes. We rarely sit down and talk to those folks about what were your motivations? Why did you commit these crimes? What types of things would lead you to desist from those situations, et cetera? I remember Professor Cromwell years ago did a study on the ethnographic nature of Burke and published this wonderful book. And I remember he coined the phrase situational analysis. So what he would do would take active offenders, those folks that said, yeah, we, you know, we're committing burglaries. He would take them into various neighborhoods and said, you know, if you had to commit a burglary today in this neighborhood, which house would you select and why would you select yeah. that? And just wonderful information came out of that that really could inform crime prevention practices. So if you think about it. So I think that's one thing that we in criminal justice have tended to do is shy away from talking to those that are offenders and getting on their level to a certain respect. Well, we see that happen and maybe not in research or in writing, but where law enforcement will reach back out to hackers and say, how'd you do it? Why would you do it? Take a look at us. Are we vulnerable? Those kinds of things. I think we miss those opportunities if we don't take them. Yes. And remember years ago when the behavioral science unit was started at Quantico by the FBI, I mean, the two agents that really had that idea, that was resisted going out and talking to folks that were involved in serial killing and things of that nature. Very interesting. So what is on your bucket list? What are you trying to accomplish next? You just finished writing. You're on to your next project pretty soon, I'm sure. What are you thinking about? Well, I've launched into a, another book and it's actually been in progress now for a couple of years. It's a little more difficult one to write. I'm doing a case study of O.W. Wilson's tenure as chief in Wichita. So it's an historical case study, which has taken me out to the University of California, Berkeley at their special holdings, because that's where most of his papers are. Yeah. And of course, the great August Balmer, such a connection between Wilson and, and Balmer. And it's been a, just a wonderful experience. I've got about two chapters to complete on that work before it goes off to the publisher. But that has, you know, I've studied Wilson for years, and I think he is probably one of the more understudied, his Wichita days, I should say, are the more understudied as far as a reformer coming into a department that the chief of police, the assistant chief, were just coming off federal indictments. I mean, Wichita was a rough community in the 1930s, and Wilson came in and literally reformed it from 28 to 39 when he was here. So I think it's understudied. And so that's why I really wanted to launch into that work a couple of years ago. But it's tedious. Anytime historical archival data, try to triangulate your sources, and that's difficult. So the other thing that I'm involved in now is a, an actual randomized controlled trial here in Wichita of differential police response to low risk, low harm calls. And this was another opportunity that this kind of just came to be. I mean, it was a great opportunity. I had a real good working relationship with the chief particular commander over there. And they're like 80, I think right now they're 80 some odd police officers down. 
And so what they're finding is that for a lot of these low-risk, non-harm calls, citizens are waiting an hour, sometimes two hours for police. They wanted to see if if we can roll a citizen right over to a police officer by telephone, yes. directly over, if satisfaction levels remain the same between a control group and our experimental group. And so we've been at this since March, and we're just about to wrap this up in about a month or so. And then we're going to look at the data. We're going to see if citizens who have immediate phone contact with a police officers solve their problems. If their satisfaction levels of the police department have remained the same and they would recommend that service to others, why is the police department still sending officers those calls when they could be rolling it over? We're going to up that to kind of a video, immediate contact by video with the police officer. That's kind of the second tier of the study. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> it certainly is happening in healthcare, so why not in policing? And I think that's a very interesting perspective. And I think COVID, some people and some agencies did exactly that, saying, look, when I come into your house, you can file the report online and is that satisfying people? And if you can get more immediate reaction and get that issue, whatever the problem or complaint is off your plate, I would surmise, this is not the empirical side of things, but I would surmise that people would be satisfied. It's no different. You know, Mike, it's no different than making a phone call for tech support and being put on hold. And sure, well, you've done it. Associate, 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 associate. I need assistance as you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to talk to a human being. That's yes. it. <laughs> yes. When we were around the table discussing the possibility of carrying out this randomized control experiment, which is very, very difficult to get everyone on board. We had meetings with our 911 center here, and there's a lot that has to go on because it once the calls are triaged by the dispatcher that they could be included in the study, they literally randomize them into the group. So there was a lot that had to happen. But I remember having this conversation with a couple of the commanders over the police department. We were joking around about we could publish this and maybe telecops in Wichita, something like that. So <laughs> you do, you hear about telemedicine and it's the same principle. I like that. I like that. There you go. You, you might be on to something there, which is terrific. I want to go back to O.W. Wilson. I'm going to ask you a question, play devil's advocate. You're spending an awful lot of time, as you indicated, to look at the historical perspective, what Wilson did, what the steps he took to improve and to reform the police department. Why do you care and who else will care? That's a great question. I think that we look at reform, police reform, I mean, we seem to, every time something happens, committees are formed, recommendations are made, and nothing really, really changes. I think that if we look back at some of our pioneers in this profession to see what they did and what they did right, looking at Wilson in Wichita, which again is understudied, and that's why I really wanted to take the project on, and bounce forward to 1960 when he was appointed the head of the Chicago Police Department on what he did there to an extremely corrupt organization at the time, I think we can learn much from what reformers like Wilson did and how he did it. And I think oftentimes we don't study that from the historical perspective. So what did Wilson do and what can we adopt from Wilson today? The last thing that I wrote, what can be learned? And it sounds like you're heading in that direction, which is terrific. And I think, as you indicate, that both August Vollmer and O.W. Wilson were way ahead of their time. And I think chiefs today, what you're finding, could find some value in the approach. Yeah. Even though you have to fast forward in another five decades. Absolutely. Things have changed. You spend a lot of time having outreach to current 
police officers, both in the classroom, who I'm sure are your students, but practitioners in organizations, how receptive are they? How interested are they in trying to do the right thing, trying to make some improvements, being willing to hear from you as a pracademic with some ideas? I think they're very receptive. And I think we touched on this earlier in the interview, but I think one of the things that helps when you walk into the classroom is that you've been there, you've been an officer, you've been in the field. And that brings a certain amount of credibility, I believe, to whether you have police officers in the classroom or students that are headed into various roles in the criminal justice profession. So I think on its face, that helps. And I remember early in my career, early in my graduate studies, a professor uh, told me, when you get into academia, don't let it be known too much that you were a former police officer. At that time, it was resented among a lot of faculties. They didn't like that. And they thought you were just going to come in and tell a lot of war stories. And so, you know, I was cautioned against doing that. And I didn't for a long, long time. Kept it off of my activity reports that I would submit at my university. And then as I really evolved into a qualitative researcher, I said, you know, that's important. So then I began to reveal that more and more. But I'll never forget that. And you know, we're talking middle 1980s, late 1980s, a professor telling me. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It still goes on today, yes. as you know. And there is some disdain on campuses for, for criminal justice departments mm-hmm. in many ways, because in many ways, some of my experience have been, it's not seen as an academic discipline. I disagree. Right. But also there's times when I've been accused or derided for being an apologist for police, Mm -hmm. where you're trying to explain the police perspective and other faculty members who have nothing but disdain for policing do not want to hear your point of view. And that's pretty sad on campus. I mean, what we see on campuses sometimes is pretty upsetting. I'll ask you this. Do you find with your students that there are times when they have an open conversation with you that they're uncomfortable in some classes because they're CJ majors and they're being ridiculed or they're being challenged? I don't know if that happens in your area, but it certainly does with us. Yeah, I see that occasionally, you know, students and particularly in some of the other social science areas that they get it pretty hard when there always has been this kind of criminal justice. It's really not a real discipline where I've seen that a lot. I don't want to, I've got a lot of colleagues, close colleagues in in sociology, but that seems to be where a lot of my students say that they get a lot of pushback, some of their sociology. We're talking to Mike Berzer and he is a professor at Wichita State University. We're talking to him in Kansas City today. That's what happened to the criminology program out at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley, which Balmer had a big, big hand in that. And then later, O.W. Wilson is their first dean of the program. But once Wilson left to take the superintendency of Chicago, the program didn't last but a few years. And I remember remember reading an article where it was written by a group of professors there that compared the criminology program to Nazis on campus, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was was bad. Yeah, it is. And one of the things that I... think I see is there's actually some conversation that we're having among colleagues of mine from across the country. Just the question, the curiosity of you or I as researchers or scholars is always looking for a question to answer. And one of the questions was, is there implicit bias on campus towards criminal justice departments? I don't know whether that can ever be proven, but you're exactly right. The decrim did not last. The doctor of criminology did not last. That's a crazy thing. What's your perspective? on police agencies and what they have to do to make some improvements to earn back community trust? You know, I think that somewhere along the way, we've gotten away from those key ingredients in community-based policing, the idea of community partnerships, the problem solving, and then organizational transformation things that have to take place to allow 
police officers to really practice what Robert Terjanowitz, what he really oh, bless us, bless his soul. I know. Absolutely. You know, and I think we've lost that somewhere along the way. And for various reasons, I do believe that police departments really need to refocus on their organizations. And now we have evidence-based policing practices, I think, are the gold standards these days. Anytime that police department can look at tested evidence that this works and implement those programs and practices that really work and get rid of those that are not showing success. And that, of course, can be times a political sell for a, a police chief, particularly. But I think that police departments need to engage in the evidence-based practices as much as possible. And I think that we need to get back to those core elements of community policing, not just as a specialized approach to policing, but begin to incorporate that as a holistic organizational change for your agency. There's no reason why every police officer on any beat can't practice community policing. We know that a police officer doesn't go out and for eight hours, they go from call to call, eight hours. Some days you're going to be pretty busy, but other days there is downtime. That's when the officer parks. Rest the flesh. Rest the flesh. Yep. Mm -hmm. Get out of the car, knock on some doors. Hi, I'm Officer so-and-so. I work your area every day from 3 p.m. to 11, whatever the case may be. And I think that we have to get back to that. I like it. I mean, taking the time to introduce, know the people, realize that not everybody, in fact, most everybody is not against policing, but doesn't know a police officer. And so making friends becomes important. You know, what you were talking about with evidence-based policing and the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing has taken off. I like what has happened in the last few years, and I would dare say you might feel the same way. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the leads program that NIJ has started is amazing. And I certainly wish for me and probably for you that we had those opportunities. Oh, absolutely. A certain commander at the Wichita Police Department I'm working with, he is very much involved in that, very much into the evidence-based practices. In fact, he just wrapped up, we co-sponsored a a science-based interviewing class in the past four days with him, and he's doing some unique, unique work. So yeah, I think that the evidence-based stuff and what the lead is doing with that is just great. I wish those opportunities were around when coming up. At that time, I don't know if you ever got this, but there were still a lot of folks. There weren't a lot of people that were getting graduate degrees in police agencies at that time. And so you were kind of looked at as What are you going to be? What are you trying to be smarter than me? Absolutely. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. When I I was a DEA, when I ever said I was going for a doctoral program, they they look at me like, what do you think you're smarter than me? And that question itself, in my mind, would say, "Uh, I think I already know the answer. And I, and that was being facetious and a wise ass for sure, but you're right. You're right. And I I think we're so lucky to be in academia and as pracademics, I would have to say, if you don't mind my overusing word, because in many cases we're able to pay forward and help the next generation think about how they can play a role in making improvements. And we've been focusing on policing for sure, but we're talking about policing and parole and juvenile justice and victim studies and crime analysis and such. Let's ask this. Mike, do you believe that police departments would be served well by civilianizing some of the positions, not being afraid to bring in specialists that are not sworn officers to do certain jobs? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I think that many roles on the police department that are now being performed by a sworn police officer, it's wasted time. I think that we can hire civilians to fill many of those roles and probably hire civilians that have specialized in those areas that we need in police and probably be much better at it. We're looking at a a mental health crisis. As you know, now we see the benefits of employing the uses of social workers in policing. Co-responses. Yeah, absolutely. 
it makes it makes good sense. I mean, we for years and years and years, police officers had to deal with those situations, and we could hire others to more effectively that are trained in those areas to deal with them. That make a, that's their craft. So yes, I agree. I think a lot of positions can be civilianized. How can we do some convincing to police agencies and police leaders that being willing to partner with a university can be very beneficial? Obviously, it has to be the right researcher, action research rather than longitudinal research that never ends. What is your experience in trying to convince other organizations that we can work together and do some good things? I think in the past, it's it's been more challenging as opposed to today. And one of the unique things that we have at Wichita State now is the Law Enforcement Training Center is now on campus. And our criminal justice department is on the third floor of that building. So it makes for a natural kind of merging of the, the applied research that we can do for the police department. But I also think that as researchers, and particularly police researchers, when we do things, we collaborate with police officers or our police departments, we need to publish that information. We need to get it out so that people can see, you know, look what we're doing here. Look at this study we did here, a randomized controlled trial on differential police response strategies. If you have these working relationships and partnerships with police agencies, even if it's narrow within your own jurisdiction, we can begin to advance evidence-based things and apply research, tested research to policy formation and strategy. Well, I also think that in academia, we have a tendency to write a different way for academic journals and that we need to do a better job of synthesizing some of that work and putting it in professional magazines in shorter order. I know you've had that experience. It's a different kind of writing and not everybody is ready for that. But what's your experience with that? I absolutely agree. Probably some of the best feedback I've ever received on some of my early work trying to apply andragogy into police training environments is a couple of articles I published in the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. That got more, you know, practitioners read those types of things. They don't read the academic journals. They read the practitioner-oriented journals like the FBI Bulletin, the Police, Chief, Police Chief Magazine, yep, Sheriff Absolutely. Magazine, yep. And I think researchers, I think we've got to do a better job of trying to publish in those venues the practitioner world is exactly what we're doing and co-publish with the practitioners. You know, once this RCT is complete, we're going to co-publish this and bring some of our police persons that have been involved in this study. Right. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You've used an acronym. What's RCT? Randomized control trial. Okay. Okay. I wanted control. to make sure. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So publishing with those that are involved in the project, putting the yeah. police officers on that and letting them have contribution, I think can go a long ways as well. Well, in some ways, there's a little resistance from the academic field to use the term best practices, but you know that's exactly what nearly every police chief and deputy police chief wants to know. What's the best practice out there? So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can customize it for here, but tell me what you did, how you did it. And it sounds like if you ended up with this telecop idea, that's exactly what they're looking for. Yes, you're correct. And in, in order of transparency, we are replicating this to a certain extent from a study that was done in the UK. And they've done some significant work with evidence-based practices. Of course, you have Dr. Lawrence Sherman, who's over there at Cambridge. Cambridge. Yeah, absolutely. So now we're taking bits and pieces of that and seeing if we can find some of the same things that they found in the UK. And there's a lot of different dynamics there from the UK to the United States policing. Well, that has to do with police training. And I was talking to a colleague of mine, Dr. Jim O'Keefe, yesterday, and he was involved 
involved in helping PERF as they put together training. I don't even have it right here, but the training piece on 40 ideas to improve police training. And I think that's very fascinating. It will help. But my experience too, going over to the UK and going over to Ireland, it's a little bit different. And I'll ask you this, Mike, we don't do a lot of reflecting in police academies. You know, it is not done. You're going to an academy, you come back from the academy, you go to field training, you're then put on your own, you're assessed while you're on probation, and then you're on your own. As opposed to what happens over in Europe in some cases is that you go out, you have your field training, and you come back now with that experience level, that lived experience, and you reflect on what did you do? What did your partner do? What could you have done different? What could you have done better? That's to me a missing component in our police training. I see you shaking your head. I have the benefit of that. What's your point of view? Absolutely. Yeah. I think getting into the andragogical piece, you know, there's a piece of that as well for reflective learning, having the learners reflect on what they've learned in the classroom and then sending them to the field for a while, having them come back into the classroom and reflecting on those perspectives. That's very much in tune with andragogy and and some of the other reflexive learning. What we talk about in qualitative research as well, the researcher has to be reflexive. Yes. How how do we move that forward in police training, I wonder? That's the difficult piece. It's a question of money because you're you're sending people back from the field. We do in-service, and I will say that it's my experience that much of the in-service is not as stellar as it should be, is not as rigid as it should be, or as rich as it should be. It's almost like we're we're here, we're going to tell you what you have to know, and then go back to the field. Yes. I, I think we've got to do a better job. I certainly don't want to see doctors trained that way to learn new surgery, right? Or a, <laughs> or a, or a pilot yes. who has to learn some new, new technology. I think we do ourselves a bit of a disservice by minimizing the value and the potential for continuing education. Yeah, I agree. I think too that us in academia in general need to reach out to the police populations more, get them around the table and talk about these ideas, whether it's your jurisdiction level or whether it's wider within your state. You got to begin to to kick around ideas with practitioners. And I think once that happens, we're going to move forward significantly. That's great. So we're going to wind down. I'm talking with Mike Berzer, Dr. Mike Berzer, Michael Berzer. He is a professor at Wichita State University and also a former police lieutenant, a sheriff's lieutenant. He's very active in policing, very active in research. I like the idea of qualitative research. So we wind down. If you had a chance to talk to someone dead or alive, besides O.W. Wilson, <laughs> who would you want to pick their brains? Oh, that's a good one. You know, probably give you an international perspective. Sir Robert Peel yes. would love, would love to have a conversation with him. And as you know, many of those principles at least were attempted in the United States. So I would say internationally, Sir Robert Peel, and then August Vollmer. That's good. And the last question I ask an awful lot of people is, what do you say to students about policing and to try to convince them that they can have some value in policing in the future? I would say to students that obviously you can look, you can watch the news media every single night, and someone's going to be critical of the police. We have these incidents that occur every now and then but they don't happen every day. But if you think that you want to be a police officer, it's an honorable profession, come in and change from within. That would be my advice. So what's on the agenda for the next semester? What are you teaching? This next semester, I'm actually in summer, I'm doing an online law enforcement course. In the fall, I'll be doing qualitative research method and introduction to law enforcement. 
Mm-hmm. That's great. I want to ask about that qualitative course. Tell me how you prosecute that course. Okay. So I approach it. I introduce students to five approaches and, and I draw from Cresswell's work at Cresswell and Poth now. But so we start out looking at number one, the first few weeks, what is qualitative research and kind of give the students an idea of how that differs from quantitative orientations. And then we get into five different approaches for the semester. We look at ethnography, we look at case study, we look at phenomenology. We look at biographical research and to give the students whatever their research questions are, what of these areas do you think you would, or the approach to qualitative research would most benefit the questions you're trying to answer? So if you're interested in how crime victims experience maybe burglary, it lends itself directly to phenomenology because that's what it is. It's a study of experience. So I give the students broad, and this is a graduate level course. So oftentimes I'll have students that are in the our PhD program over in community psychology will yeah. take the course. And They've been oriented towards quantitative research. So it gives them a whole different outlook on research and what can be done with qualitative research. What tools do you choose to use? There's several that really, the interview, don't underestimate the value of the interview. And of course, the field, field observations with ethnography is very important. Being in the field, observing that, whether as a participant observer or a non-participant observer, I think is very important. We've got a graduate student now that's getting ready to defend his ethnographic research. He'd looked at rural law enforcement culture in Kansas. So he literally had open access to the site that he selected and just spent months riding around with the officers, hanging around the police station. So that's what I encourage students to do more of is to get into the field and observe and do ethnographic types of analyses as well. So I'll leave you with this question in terms of software to do coding, to do the collection and parse out some of the characteristics. What do you like to use? Well, I use a number of different programs. Vivo is one. Another one one is just an Excel spreadsheet. I'll begin to massage the data. I think too, and I did a lot of keep up on the field, the Odom Institute at the University of North Carolina, they offer the summer intensive and I've done those for the past six years now. And some of the best qualitative researchers that are facilitating these classes will tell you that, you know, they don't use anything. They don't like anything to come between them and the data. They like to work it out on paper in the transcripts or their note cards or whatever. You know, I'm not quite to that point. I do like the technology and I think it can offer some benefits, but in the end, it's still up to the researcher to make sense of what that data is telling him or her. And I could interpret transcript or a number of transcripts much different than maybe another person that comes in and looks at those transcripts. So that's it's great. a matter and that's the nature of qualitative work. It's the interpretation of the researcher. And of course, we've got ways to try to, as you know, validate our findings through member checking and a number of different approaches we can do. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Michael Berzer and he is a pracademic working at Wichita State University, doing a number of things, including getting ready to write a book, continuing to do research and keep top of it. He's in Kansas City today, and we appreciate you sharing your ideas, your thoughts here to the audience. The audience is a very often people are coming to us from Canada, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Ireland, I'm very proud to say. So I'm happy to introduce them to you and you to them. How can people reach you if they would like? They can email me at 
michael.berzer at wichita.edu. That's probably the best way. Or just, uh, if you can't, if you didn't copy that, just go to the Wichita State University School of Criminal Justice website and I'm there. That's terrific. Well, thanks so much for your time and your energy. Good luck this weekend. I know you're out there following yes. some baseball and I appreciate you taking the time while you're on the road. Mike, yeah, thanks thank very you. much. Have a great summer. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. All right. That's another episode of the Cop Talk Podcast. I'm Steve Morelli coming to you from Boston. Stay tuned for other episodes. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to the Cop Doc Podcast with Dr. Steve Morreale. Steve is a retired law enforcement practitioner and manager turned academic and scholar from Worcester State University. Please tune into the Cop Doc Podcast for regular episodes of interviews with thought leaders in policing.